God, we, we come to you this morning and we put our hope in you. We, we declare our need for you. And Lord, we're grateful that you've spoken to us through your word. Jesus, that you've communicated to us and that you're speaking, us to, us, speaking to us now. So Lord, we, uh, we open up our hearts to you, Lord. Soften our hearts, help us to hear your words. And like we, we talked about last week, help them to build our life upon them, to, to put them into practice. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm about to alienate myself because I'm going to show you a video clip that only like baseball fans and people who like dad jokes are going to get. The rest of you are going to be like, this is lame, but we're going to watch it anyway. How many of you have ever seen the classic Abbott and Costello who's on first bit? If you, yeah, yeah, Scott likes it. I knew you would. This is for you, Scott. If you haven't, uh, you need a refresher. Take a look at this clip. It'll I'll tell you, you'll see what I'm talking about. When we get to St. Louis, will you tell me the guys' names on the team so I go to see them in that St. Louis ballpark? I'll be able to know those fellas. Well, now, it's all right, folks. There I go, back on third again. Well, I can't change their names. <laughs> Will you please? Okay, I spared those of you who don't think this is funny the rest of the five minutes where they keep doing this over and over again. But I love this clip because uh, it's, it's actually one of the first things that popped into my head as I was reading uh, our scripture for today. One of the people is very clear. He's being as clear as he can be as he explains the names of the people on first, second, and third base, right? The other person couldn't be more lost and confused. And our passage today actually shows us how easily we can miss what Jesus is trying to do in and through us. In one paragraph, Jesus is very explicitly clear what he's going to Jerusalem to do, and the very next thing that happens shows that his followers still don't get it. And this is a, a, a series we're going to be doing throughout April where we head toward Easter. And uh, this week we're going to start with the journey of Jesus uh, to Jerusalem and, and what he teaches his disciples on the way to Jerusalem. And then next week, Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem. And then he shares his last meal with his followers and he teaches them. And then he goes to the garden and uh, he says, Father, if, if there's any other way, take this cup of suffering away from me. But then he faithfully goes to the cross, and that's Good Friday, and then on the third day, he raises from the dead. And so we're going to track this whole path to Jerusalem, to resurrection, and then ultimately to the ascension when Jesus goes to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. Today's passage shows us how easy it is for us to miss what Jesus is doing. But it's a key passage that helps us today understand what Jesus' kingdom is all about, and it also helps us understand our identity in him. So I'm going to read from this passage now. The world's will be on the screen, or you can open up a, a Bible. This is Matthew 20, uh, starting in verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, and this is the who's on first bit. He's being very clear about what's about to happen. We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So there's the, I've just explained to you who's on first. <laughs> and here come the disciples with, we don't get it. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's son, James and John are, are, are the, uh, Zebedee's sons. 
They came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard about this, they were indignant because, uh, with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I love that phrase. Not so with you. In, who, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slaves. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The reason why I say this is a biblical who's on first. Again, Jesus clearly says what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. And I'm going to raise again. And they're like, yeah, 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 totally, Jesus. That's cool. When you go into Jerusalem and you conquer everything and you come into all your glory, can we be your top two sidekicks? Can we rule over Jerusalem with you? Can we, can we gloat in the face of the Romans after we're victorious over them? Because that would be pretty awesome. And I can imagine Jesus thinking, how did you get that based on what I just said? How are you not getting this? And we've got the benefit of 2,000 years of hindsight. We've got the benefit of having English Bibles with subheadings. And if you open up your Bible, the subheading might read this. Jesus predicts his death a third time. This is not even new information he's giving them. This is the third time, at least the third time, he has predicted his death. So why do they miss it? They miss it because they can't imagine a world in which surrender, defeat, even death. They can't imagine a world where that would equal victory. In the third chapter of Genesis, when humanity falls to sin, we fell to rebelliousness and we invited all this brokenness into our lives and into the world. Ever since then, the world has run on a certain kind of power. It's a coercive power. It's a power that seeks to take hold and control by force over other people. You know, it's obvious when we see it in big ways. We, we see what's happening in Ukraine right now. We see one nation invading a sovereign nation, and, and the motives aren't even clear. There doesn't even seem to be a consistent ideology or belief system at work here. It's just power for power's sake, or money, or territory, or ego. And look at all the lives that are lost because of this. And on a big scale, this is that power that's at work in the world I love history, but when you see examples like this in history, there's never any end to it. As soon as one power-hungry, bloodthirsty ruler gets in place, what happens? Well, the paranoia sets in. Because they know there's somebody out there just like them who will come for them and for their crown. And it's a never-ending cycle. It's why kings always had people around to taste their food and drink, because they knew somebody's going to poison me eventually. I did it to the last guy. Of course, somebody's going to do it to me. It's just this cycle of power-hungry people trying to take over. Every time someone thinks to themselves in any situation, you know what, if only I had all the power and control in this situation, everything would be better. Every time someone exercises coercive power to get what they want, they never actually solve any problems. It just sets off a 
chain reaction, starts a ticking clock until someone else gets in and thinks that they're going to solve all the problems by taking over, taking control. And history repeats itself, right? We know that cliche. If we don't learn from history, we're, we're doomed to repeat it. And it keeps repeating itself over and over and over again, the same story. But I also want to remind ourselves that this kind of exercise of power may be more subtle, but it's present in our day-to-day lives as well. People everywhere are seeking to climb the corporate ladder. And often they'll do whatever it takes because they believe that the end justifies the means. And, And they never stop to consider who gets trampled in the process as they climb to the top. Politics. I don't think we need to mention just how dirty a game that is and what people will do to get power. And we see all the people that are hurt by it as they live under leaders who are self-serving and only seeking to hold on to power. In our everyday relationships, people lie and they manipulate to get what they want out of the situation because they only see through the lens of what makes me happy. You know, we even see it online. I'm so happy my kids don't have social media. It is cruel. Online bullying is, is a real thing and kids are lonely and desperate because of it. If you're a young person, my heart goes out to you because of what you experience on these apps. I don't know what people get out of harassing other people online, maybe some sense of self-worth that, that because they've postured themselves over another person, they feel better about themselves. Or maybe they're hurting and in their hurt, they lash out and drag other people into it. I don't know, but it's everywhere even down to the most basic relationships we have, this power is at work, this worldly and coercive power. And too often, we chalk it up as a necessary evil. It's just the way the world works. And so I guess it's the game we have to play. But Jesus wants us to have a new imagination for how we engage the world. As he and his friends are headed to Jerusalem, they're expecting him to be this conquering king. They've comedically sort of, but tragically missed what he is saying. At least three times he's told them the plan and they still don't get it because they've seen how powerful he can be and they believe that he's going into Jerusalem to exercise the power the way the world does. He's going to go in there. He's going to kick some Roman butt. He's going to get rid of Herod, the puppet ruler. He's going to kick out all the corrupt religious leaders. And by the power of the sword or by some supernatural force, he's coming into his glory. That's what they imagined Jesus' glorification was going to be. And to reiterate, he's already told them that's not the plan. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. And so they must, have think, they must have thought he was speaking figuratively when he said that. He can't be speaking literally. Because if they did, they would have seen what was coming. They would have seen his arrest coming, but they didn't. And they scattered at the arrest. When you get crucified, they think they've been defeated. In this match of power versus power, the religious leaders and the Romans have won. And our guy's been defeated. And then they still clearly must have thought it was figuratively on the third day when he rose again because they weren't expecting that either. They were defeated, they were lost, and oh, he's, he's alive? He told them they would be. And I don't say this to bash the disciples. I would have been just as confused as they are because this is not how the world works. This is not what we've experienced in our lives. People don't win by surrendering. They don't win by dying. And people don't raise from the dead. Of course they were confused. They had no imagination 
for what Jesus is doing. But he wants them to see a different possibility. He wants them to ask this question. What if the answer to the world's problems, which are created by people like us, who are often self-serving and power-hungry, what if the solution isn't in trying to grab that same power and use it for good? Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve and sacrifice. What if this What if in this serving and sacrificial living is actually the healing power that the world needs? Now, I've been told many times that I'm naive. That you just can't opt out of the way the world works unless you want to become Amish. And I'm not suggesting today that we become Amish. Because I'd be really bad at farming. I don't know how to churn butter. And I don't know how to raise a barn, okay? But... When Jesus says, what good is it for a person to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? I got to admire a group of people who take that so literally that they build their life on a foundation that says the ways of the world are not for me. And so I don't think Jesus was calling John and James and the other disciples to that kind of extreme disengagement that the Amish practice. That extreme disengagement with the culture around them. But I do think he expected them and I do think he expected us to look different than the ways of the world. To take our eyes off of what works in worldly systems and set our eyes on what works in God's kingdom. So Jesus tells them he'll be a surrendering and a slain king. But James and John still have their imagination that they're going to stroll into Jerusalem with their ancient uh, Walkman playing, the boys are back in town and we are going to take Jerusalem back. He's going to rule and we're going to be his right and left hand man. In Mark's gospel, he includes this, this, uh, this quote from James and John themselves. He, he, they, he, they say it this way, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. This is what they imagine Jesus' glory looks like. But look back at verse 22. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When Jesus talks about the cup, And this is relevant for us today as we take communion. When he talks about the cup, he's talking about the cup that the prophets talked about uh, and that he himself has talked about before this, the cup of wrath or judgment or, or sometimes it's called the cup of suffering. The world is broken because of sin and we continue in our rebellion against God. We live by the ways of the world. We live by our own rules and people get trampled so that we can get what we want. And in the midst of it, somebody's got to do something. God's judgment has to fall on someone. And Jesus, God in the flesh, instead of raining fire and wrath on you and me, he says, I'll drink that cup of judgment myself. It's also called the cup of suffering. The prophet Isaiah, who who prophesied 700 years before Jesus, promised a Savior who will not only take up our sins, but also take up our suffering. Jesus doesn't want to, he wants to bring forgiveness of sin, but even more than that. 
He wants to be with us in our suffering. He brings hope into our suffering when we've been trampled on by others and by life circumstances. He came and he suffered so that he might ultimately bring redemption to our suffering. A future hope where all is made right and there is no more suffering. That's what he came to do. He took that cup of suffering for us. And I want to say to you today, because this may be you, you may be in a season of suffering. Jesus is not far away. He's been there. He suffered tremendously. He was slandered. He was betrayed by his friends, abandoned by them. He suffered unspeakable physical pain and humiliation on the cross. And he didn't do it just so that you would have a future where the suffering is no more. He also did it for your present too. He draws near to you because he's been there. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring comfort. He wants you to know that he's not abandoned you. He wants you to know that he weeps with you and that every step you take in the midst of your suffering, he's there to help you stumble forward because sometimes that's the best we can do. And so he tells John and James, yes, you will drink the cup of suffering. And I'll get to that point later. But he wants them to see the glorification that you imagined for me coming into Jerusalem as a conquering king is not the glorification that's coming. My glorification is coming at Calvary, as I hang on a cross. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright put it, put it this way, when Jesus sits in his glory with one at his right and another on his left, it will be on the cross. That is where Jesus is glorified. The places to his right and his left are already taken by these crucified criminals, including the famous thief on the cross who puts his faith in Jesus there in the final hour. They don't... They don't get this yet. And they actually don't get it until Jesus is raised from the dead and he comes to teach them and to explain everything to them that this was the plan. Look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials ex exercise authority over them, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. As they're clamoring for power and worldly glory, Jesus says, what if there's another way? In the same way that Jesus' death and resurrection changed everything, what if the way to change the world happens in little ways every day as we follow his path of sacrifice and service to others? And don't get me wrong, it's costly. It's not as glamorous as the other way. It doesn't look as appealing. To apply this to every aspect of your life, it, it might cost you a promotion as you refuse to cut corners and violate your conscience in order to climb the ladder. It might cost you a title or a position of influence. And making decisions like that might cost you money. And maybe the radical call of Jesus to be generous and to care for the poor might cost you money. It might cost you friends. It might cost you your reputation and your values as your values become out of step with those systems and the people who buy into them. It might cost you happiness that the world tells you that you are entitled to. And, and things like success and relationships and finances and whatever else. But what if it's worth it? 
What if it's worth those costs because it leads to real life? What if it leads to true and lasting happiness? In the same way that Jesus' suffering ultimately led to his resurrection, the kingdom of God breaking through here and now, what if, a live, what if living a life of sacrifice and service for others is a way for the kingdom to continue breaking through here and now in these small ways? What if we bought into that? The ripple effect would be amazing. It would bring change in us and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in this city. And we, keep, we can keep spinning around in these cycles of the way the world works and getting the same results. Or what if we tried Jesus' way? So Jesus brings about this new way of living, this way of, of dying to ourselves, of following in his footsteps, of service and sacrifice. But I want us to take one more thing away from us this morning, from this passage. And it's James and John themselves and how their life with Jesus ultimately changed everything for them and it starts with their identity. In Mark's gospel, we know that Jesus gave James and John, these two brothers, these sons of Zebedee, he gives them the name Sons of Thunder, which is a great nickname. I wish I could pull that nickname off. In Luke 9, we actually see how they get the nickname. Jesus uh, was seeking to go into a Samaritan town to preach uh, the good news of his kingdom, but for some reason, this village made it known that he was not welcome there. And so this is how James and John respond. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and destroy them? And Jesus turned around and rebuked them. (laughs) Sons of thunder, they are ready for a fight. They're ready to take their rightful place next to Jesus as conquerors of Jerusalem. But life with Jesus changed everything for them. After they experienced the roller coaster of his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven, what happens? Jesus changed their identities completely. Start with James. James went from son of thunder, which he might have thought was a cool nickname at the time, but it was actually Jesus saying, your hope is in the wrong place. He went from being a son of thunder to becoming the first of the apostles to be martyred. James is killed by Herod, not because he took up arms, to start a revolution against Herod, but because he refused to stop preaching the gospel. He went from a son of thunder who was willing to kill for Jesus to a son of God who was willing to risk everything for Jesus. And Jesus was right. James drank from that cup of of suffering. He followed in his Lord's footsteps. And at the time, the world would have seen this as a defeat But all it did is keep bringing more and more people to Jesus. What looked like defeat for James was victory for the kingdom. As more and more people witnessed these martyrs who are so dedicated to Christ that they said, I don't know what's willing to die for, but I want it. John went from a son of thunder, lacking in grace, seeking to exercise power. You know what his nickname was later? He was the apostle of love. Again, another sweet nickname. And maybe a cool, like, funk band name, Apostle of Love. <clears throat> Somebody like that. Thanks, Will. <laughs> I can recognize that laugh anywhere. He became the Apostle, apostle of Love. Jesus' radical message of servant-hearted, sacrificial love and his demonstration of it on the cross sunk so deeply into John that he never stopped 
preaching about it. Read his gospel. How much he emphasizes love that causes a person to lay down their life for, for another. In his letters, letters to the church, 1 John and 2 John, he says that God is love, and he goes so far as to say that if we say we love God, but we don't love people, then we're liars. The cup of suffering for John was different than his brother James. John is believed to be the only one of the 12 apostles who wasn't killed for his faith. And you may think, oh, he got off easy. No, he had to watch every one of his friends die. It's crazy. He had to watch his best friend Peter get hung on a cross upside down. His own brother killed. His suffering was to lose everyone he loved. Everyone who stood shoulder to shoulder with him in ministry. And it was in this context that he proclaimed this truth. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. His suffering should have made him bitter. All of that loss should have made him angry at God and at the world. It should have had had him continuing to call down fire from heaven of judgment because of what was happening around him. But instead, he shed his label as a son of thunder and proclaimed to the world the message of God's love. So my question for us today is, what labels have you earned for yourself? What labels has the world put on you fairly or unfairly? Maybe you've been carrying around the weight of your own sin and you can't see yourself through any other label than addict, angry, workaholic, lazy, lustful. Whatever it might be, maybe that you just feel stuck and that this label is hanging over your head and you don't know how to shake it. Or maybe you've been working on a label for yourself that's going to bring you some sort of joy and glory in this life. A label like CEO or valedictorian or captain of the team, leader in the community, parent or grandparent of the year. You name it. But what if this isn't how God sees you? What if he wants you to lay down those labels at the foot of the cross and receive a new identity? Beloved child of God. What if abundant life isn't found in any of these things and Jesus wants you to be willing to lay them at his feet so that you can find that primary identity? That whatever other labels you carry, the one that that is over all of them is beloved child of God. James and John, they surrendered this label, this son of thunder label, and they found true and everlasting life in Christ. And they dedicated the rest of their lives to sacrifice and to service so that more and more people could experience the abundant eternal life of Jesus Christ. They finally figured out that who was on first. They finally understood what Jesus was getting at. And it's a lesson that we need to keep learning today. The way of Jesus and his kingdom runs counter to the ways of the world. Jesus' path to the cross doesn't look like glory in the way that the world defines glory, but it's what brought us redemption in life. And in the same way, the path of following Jesus doesn't often look like glory in the world's eyes, but it brings us redemption and life. And it starts with us doing the hard work of surrender. 
And it's not a one-time surrender. It's a practice we have to do over and over again as we shed off the labels that we've chased after. We shed off the labels that we've earned because of our sin. We shed the labels that the world has put on us, fair or unfair. And we trade those in for that label, child of God. It's a label that brings true meaning, true joy to our lives, and it's the one thing that this world cannot take from you. And so I encourage you today, draw near to Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you feel weighed down by the way this world works, you feel trampled upon or you feel caught up in sin and you're carrying around this label that is weighing you down, remember your first identity is as a beloved child of God. Come to him today and lay those things at his feet. Start over. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, whoops, (laughs) whether here or online, if you never put your faith in Jesus, don't wait. You can draw near to him today. You can ask him for new life. You can ask him to set you free of the old life and give you something new, something that really lasts, something that's meaningful. And I'm gonna invite the band up right now and we're gonna go to a time of communion. As we remember Jesus this beginning of April, as we get close to Holy Week and we look to what he did for us on the cross and through his resurrection, we remember Jesus. Everything that we do is in response to what he has done for us.